If you would, go ahead and take your Bibles out and turn them over to the book of Romans. There we renew and seek to finish now the study of Romans that we started. Of course, we started it back in 2020, then took a break, and now we are aiming to finish it, and God willing, we will finish it over the next several weeks. But we think about the book of Romans and, of course, everything that it has taught us from beginning to finish, beginning with uh, the, the reality and truth of the gospel and, of course, the absolute need of the gospel and, and what the ramifications of the gospel are in the sense, what is the fruit of them? Well, of course, it, it, it convicts of sin. It, it brings redemption and justification. It starts the process of sanctification And then it calls us to live those things out in community with one another. And so once you you get to Romans 12, you you make this transition of everything that Paul has said up until that point, then begins to say, how does this translate into practical reality? And so that, that begins 12 and 13 and 14, and 14 and 15 begin beating on the same drum. And so this morning, where we find ourselves in Romans chapter 15, beginning to look at this chapter... Paul is not discontinuing the subject of bearing with one another. It is very much a part of Paul's thinking and continuing to move forward with what does it actually mean for us to be in community with one another, and how is that borne out? It's borne out in a number of different ways. How we live with each other uh, is, can be very negotiable and applicable depending on the circumstances and situations. And so that's really what we're, we're dealing with. We're, we're continuing to deal with the reality that, that Christ gives us, the gospel gives us these truth principles, and we build our lives on that foundation. And how the building will look will vary, but there are some components of the building that will not. Because in Christ's kingdom, there are negotiable things, i.e. how things are applied, then there are non-negotiable things that no matter how we might apply them, it remains firm. And so that's where we are this morning, beginning to look at Romans chapter 15. So without further delay, let's turn our attention there. This morning we are looking at Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 7. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, this morning we come and we thank you. We now look to you and your word and for your spirit to solidify these things in our minds and hearts. The truth is there. It is laid out. It is written from you to us for our good and for your glory. May it transform us, we pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. Perhaps if you're like me and, and you like history or, or, or you like stories and biographies and people's lives and how they lived, I'm, I'm always fascinated with biographies of Christian and non-Christian alike. It's just people fascinate me and their stories and lives fascinate me. And even in, in areas where biographies may drift into what could considered could be maybe thought of as legend mixed with what is true. I don't mind it so much. I just love stories, and I love a good story. Uh, one of my favorite stories from history, and of course, um, we have to receive ancient history sometimes knowing that perhaps details might be embellished here and there, but this, the story of the Thundering Legion, if you're familiar with it, is one of the stories that has always fascinated me. So you have these, these, these 40, this group of 40 men who were in the Roman army, and at some point in their lives, they had become Christians and were committed to their faith. And as legend tells, as the story goes, at one point they were fighting the enemy, and they had been instructed by their superiors to whatever God you serve, pray to that God for mercy and grace on the battlefield. And and these 40 men, they prayed to the God of heaven. They prayed that the enemy might be confused, and that day... An intense rainstorm came and did in fact confuse the enemy and they were able to be victorious. So they had this, they had this mystique about them. People knew, oh, those are the guys who prayed for a, a miracle and it happened. Well, sometime later, a particular Roman governor, governor decided he wanted these men to pay homage to the Roman gods. And because they were committed Christians, they had decided collectively, we can't do it. We can't pay homage. We can't burn incense. We can't offer prayers to the Roman deities. And, of course, unmoved by their own sense of fidelity, the Roman governor said, well, either you'll do it or you'll be executed. Or more more accurately, you'll be tortured. And so they said, well, torture. We can't do it. We're we're not going to do it. So this Roman governor took them out in the middle of winter and stripped them of their clothing and put them in the middle of a frozen lake, there to be tormented by elements. I hate cold weather. So this particularly just makes me go, oh, mercy, God, mercy. But he strips them naked and he puts them out there on the ice to let them die by the elements lest they would come and relent and offer incense and prayers to the Roman gods. They would not relent. So to increase their torment, he dug little baths around the frozen lake and filled it with hot steaming water. Come off the ice, relent, don't give or give in, and you can have a hot bath. These 40 Roman soldiers remained firm. Finally, deep into the torment, In the middle of the night, one soldier finally decided, I can't take this anymore. I'm going to the hot bath. He crawled off the ice. But here's the beautiful part of this story. They had a guard set around the lake. And unbeknownst to the 40, one of the guards had been so moved by their courage, by their commitment, and their fidelity. said, I too am a Christian. He stripped himself down. He walked out naked on the ice. So moved by these men, he wanted to join them. Anything worth that, he wanted to be a part of. And guess what? They didn't live happily ever after. Every one of them died. 
including the guy who joined them. What's the point? The point is, is this one person, this stranger saw these guys bearing burdens with each other and decided he too would go bear with them. And it cost him everything. When I think of that story, it is one of the more moving stories from martyr stories that I, that I, that I like because it, it's that reminder that bearing each other's burdens is almost never easy. It's almost never fun. It's almost never that thing that we just wake up in the morning and go, I want to bear somebody's burdens today. If you do, God bless you, and I hope your tribe increases. I'm not a part of it. I should be, but that's just not my personality. But this is the beauty of what it means to bear. It means that in hard times and in good times and bad times and in sad times and in impossible times that we're not driven by the circumstances to bear or not bear. We bear because that's Christ's calling. I don't know how many of us will get opportunities to bear burdens in the same way that the thundering legion did. Well, we might. But whether the burdens are large or small, we're called to bear them. And whether we always fully agree with someone or don't agree with them about half the things, if they call Christ Lord, we are called to bear with them. It might be a little easier to, to kind of get the hero complex and lay my life on the line for somebody. I'll tell you what is infinitely harder. It's to come into a community of people knowing there are disagreements and choosing love, humility, deference, and bearing anyway. That's a much harder situation to bear because that's a situation, beloved, that we have to live with. We live in a culture that says it's easier to be the enemy of people who disagree with us than it is to love and live with them. And yet, one of the ways that Christ would call us to stand out from culture is to say, we live in a community of people who disagree with us in some ways and maybe some significant ways, but we are going to love and live with them. That's the much harder calling. In Romans 15, that's exactly what Paul is talking about. That, this Christian community requires patience, and it requires sacrifice, and it requires them in abundance. And there probably is a measure that this is convicting to you as it was for me reading through this. I've, I've confessed that often because it is, it's easier to make someone my, my uh, enemy in principle than it is to say, though we disagree, I want to live with them and love them well. And yet, that's exactly what we as Christians are called to do. As I said a moment ago, some aspects of our faith are completely non-negotiable. We don't negotiate the virgin birth. We don't negotiate the exclusive redemption of Christ. We don't negotiate that Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, though He's expressed in three persons. These types of things, we don't negotiate. What we can negotiate is how we live our lives in the tertiary matters of how we understand what we can and can't watch, what we can and can't eat or drink, what we can and can't be a part of, where we can and can't go. All these things become matters of negotiation, how we're going to apply truth principles, and then how we live with other people who look at it differently than us. And so this becomes a matter, a much more complex matter of how do we live with people who think differently? That sounds simple. It sounds really simple. But we know as we start to do it, 
that obstacles come up. It's easy. Paul uses these two categories here. We who are strong have an obligation to bear literally with the weakness of the weak. I like the weakness better. The weakness is a more literal translation of that word with the weakness of the weak and not to please ourselves. And so the two categories given to us are weak and strong. I would venture a guess that most people in this room, including myself, tend to look at themselves in the strong category. It's just true. And if you're honest with yourself, you probably think of yourself in the context of other people. Well, I'm, I'm the stronger brother or sister because, I mean, <laughs> you know, you know, it's kind of that way. I, I'm guilty. I am guilty, guilty, guilty. I do that. I tend to think that the position that I hold is the stronger position generally without considering that I actually, in some categories, may be the weaker brother. And I think it's desirable for us to think that we are the strong who put up with the weak. We are the strong who make concessions for the weak, and so forth and so on. But what if, what if actually you are both strong and weak? What if there are ways in which you're strong and you're a gift to the church and ways in which you're weak and you are still a gift to the church? What if there are ways that you get to walk with people in their weakness, but people walk with you in yours? What would it look like for us to say, I am strong, I am weak? In the ways that I'm weak, God bless you that you're strong. In the ways that I'm strong, may I be a gift to you in your weakness. You see... When we look at these types of things, beloved, all the theological knowledge in the world means little if we cannot practice sacrifice and patience with the people of Christ. It doesn't matter how much we know. It doesn't matter how precise we are. If those things don't translate into actively living with and for the people of God in both their strengths and their weaknesses, it means very little. So we understand that an outflow of the gospel is walking with people through the details of life, through the details of life. Now, I want to back up real quick in case people, there might be someone here who who doesn't quite understand. I keep using the word gospel. I want to make sure we all understand exactly what I mean by that. So one of the best verses or one, one one of the true nuggets of Scripture is when Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says to them, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So when I speak of gospel, I'm speaking of this transaction where God took our sin and laid it upon Christ and took His righteousness and clothed us with it so we might be found acceptable to God. And so since that is true, and we all uh, who call Christ Lord walk under that banner, then there's going to be certain outflows, certain things that flow out of that, certain fruits, a certain ripple effect. And one of those happens to be bearing with one another in both strengths and weaknesses. A very practical matter, mind you, but one that needs the influence, authority, and reality of Christ applied to it. And so that an outflow of the gospel is walking with people through the details of life, even the messy ones. In fact, we might say, say especially the messy ones. 
And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see in these seven verses, and it's this. Very simple. Bearing with one another is imitating Christ. Bearing with one another is imitating Christ. When we think of what it means to bear with one another, there's a simple notion of caring for one another. So without sounding too hallmarkish, caring is bearing. So, Yeah, I know. When I wrote this in my notes, I thought this really sounds like a Hallmark card. But but nonetheless, it's true. Uh, Caring is bearing. And no, we're not care bears, so let's just go ahead and cancel that. Caring is bearing, so when we care for one another, we bear with one another. And as we bear with one another, we genuinely show care for one another. And so the body of Christ is going to always be obligated one to another, right? We're always, that's always going to be true. In fact, to use a little bit of scientific wor- uh, verbiage, we, are, we, are, we, are, we live in a symbiotic relationship. And in the sense that we live in this symbiotic relationship where one depends on the other. So in other words, you are not dead wood in the body of Christ. If you call Christ Lord this morning... You're not dead wood. You're not, you're not useless. You're not unneeded. You're not unnecessary. You're not anything. Uh, you're, not, you're not someone who doesn't possess any worth or value or contribution. We very much need each other to live out the precepts of Christ. This, this, this community, this communion, this relationship isn't optional. We're called to invest in it. And sometimes we do it well and sometimes we don't. And sometimes we use our freedom to not do it. Sometimes we use our supposed strength to not do it. Sometimes we blame our inability to do it on our weaknesses. Sometimes we blame our inability to do it on our on our this notion that we're confined in this particular area. Beloved, we, all of us here, make all kinds of excuses as to why not why we don't engage fully from time to time. But let me encourage us this morning. But an outflow of the truth of redemption is that in strength and in weakness, in good and bad, in hard and easy times that we engage and invest. We're called to that. I read this a moment ago, but it bears repeating here. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weakness of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself as it is written. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Again, why the strong category here? What does Paul mean? He's not talking about physical strength. He's not talking about any sort of moral strength necessarily. What he's really getting at is those who would be in the category of the strong of faith, those who embrace, embrace rather certain liberties in God, without any fault, without, without getting tripped up or stumbled or, or finding it difficult. These are people who have embraced the revelation of God in fullness, typically in this particular context, and what they eat, right? So that's what Paul, the, the larger context here is people who would enjoy meat without really knowing where it comes from. People who would enjoy things that historically in Jewish culture had been unclean. People who might enjoy the drinking of, of wine versus those who don't. People who observe certain days as far, besides those who don't. And, and so forth and so on. So the context here 
this people who enjoy the liberty and the freedom without their conscience being pricked. Now, he says here that the strong have an obligation to bear with the weak. And so the first obligation is whether you enjoy that or not, or if you do rather, we are obligated to those whom we would, would be the weaker brother or the weaker sister. And so what you have here is your first, this first idea is we're really called to love each other. Whether you're the weaker or, or, or the stronger here, there is a calling here that's embedded that we are called to love one another. And, and this is a command. And this is a command. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings or the weakness of the weak and not to please ourselves. So in other words, what is the overarching call of ministry, of Christianity, of Christian community? It's to love each other, to love our brothers and sisters, and to love them in spite of minor disagreements. In other words, not that I love you insofar as you agree with me and you make it easy for us to have conversations, but I love you. I love you. Beloved, if you're like me, you know in our day we could use a heavy dose of that. It's just we, the, the propaganda that's used to pit people against each other is just too heavy in our culture. We are so readily or it's become so easy to look at someone as our enemy rather than someone we might have minor disagreements with, but otherwise we have a lot in common. And so I think it's incumbent upon Christ's church to take this to heart. They'll know you're my disciples. How? By the way that you love one another. Not how you agree. Not how you're completely unified on every point of doctrine or, or politic or everything else but how we love through even the disagreements. It becomes a powerful testimony to other people, to the world, and to ourselves. So in the sense that we are called not to be selfish, we are called to live for the good of others. And let me say this, that anytime we are called to be sacrificial, we have to be wise, right? We have, we have to know our own limits. We have to know what and how and when we can give and know what and how and when to say, I can't right now. Sometimes, as the title of a popular book says, helping hurts. And there has to be wisdom in understanding when is it time to help, when is it time to step back, when is it time to engage, when is it time to disengage. But in all of these things, what the motivation should be is not how easy or convenient is it for me, how can I best love this person in front of me? Right? Because when we're motivated by love for the person, we will have to make some hard decisions. If you're any sort of manager of people, any sort of boss, a parent, a teacher, all kinds of different fields that put you in the context of people, you know exactly what that means, that sometimes with people, we have to make hard decisions that feel big and, and even like they hurt in a moment, but they're for the best because they're motivated by love. This is where I think Bonhoeffer's quote has always stuck with me. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a uh, famous German theologian, was executed in Nazi Germany towards the end of the war. One of the things that he said during his lifetime, and he said some stuff that was weird, just to be honest. He also said some really great stuff about community, about grace. One of the things he said was, is that the gospel bids us to come and die. That has always resonated with me. The gospel bids us to come and die. And you know what's interesting in that scenario? 
what does the gospel bid us to die to? Now, the most obvious answers that we would throw out there are, well, the world, to sin, to Satan. The gospel bids us to come and die to those things, but the first death that the gospel bids us to come and die to is our self. Because what Paul is driving at here can't happen if I'm living for myself. There has to be a significant death here, a death to myself, a death to everything that I think I need or want or is important. And how am I living the life of Christ on display to the world? So Bonhoeffer would tell us to come and die. And that means even when it's inconvenient. Paul gives us an example here. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, right? No selfishness. We've just talked about that. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So he quotes Psalm 69.9 there. That's a quotation from the Psalms. And this kind of stumps people in terms of how do, how do we interpret this in the flow of this paragraph? Well, one of the things we can very much say is that one of the things that Paul is doing is giving us an example of the sacrifice of Christ. He gave himself up for the glory of God. So you and I are kind of called to do likewise. And in this sense, he's, he's calling us to follow that example. But I want you to notice what he uses this psalm to do. I want you to, in that particular psalm, if you can think about it in, these, in the terms of passion, Jesus had a passion for the Father. And we remember this when he drove the people out of the temple who were selling goods. This is my father's house, and it fulfilled the scripture that zeal for my father's house will consume me. But he had a passion for God. He had a passion for the truth of God. But I want you to understand what he does here. He fundamentally identifies himself with God. So to hate me or or the reproaches that fell on you, God, have now fallen on me. Do you understand the level of identification that Paul is calling us to have with one another? So that when you hurt, the community feels the ripple effect of that hurt. So that when you rejoice, the community feels the ripple effect of that joy and rejoices with you. So that one with another, we feel your pain or you feel the pain and we experience the joy. That's the level of identification that the Scriptures are calling us to have with one another. Now it sounds intense because what that means is We have to open up our lives and actually let people in. As a pastor, I have heard so many times, I just feel no connection with the people in the church. I've heard it here. I've heard it at other churches. My first question to someone is, how open is your life to the people in the church? Because if we're going to claim we're isolated, we have to ask ourselves, am I isolating? Or am I actually letting people in. One of the worst things we can do as family members in our own little families is isolate and keep people out. Because what that means is, I don't want you speaking in. One of the worst things we can do as the family of God, listen, I'm saying this and I want you to know, you don't have to tell everybody every detail, right? There are some things you should just not tell. Just keep them. But to the point that we can create a family bond, we've got to be able to let people into our suffering, into our stumbling, into those places we would rather them not see. 
That's the beauty of this Christian community, so that when we bear with each other, we really know what our weaknesses are. We really know what our strengths are. Beloved, it's dangerous. It is. You are risking something by doing that. I am risking something. We are risking being hurt. We are risking being betrayed. We are risking being slandered, gossiped about, laughed at, made a mockery of. We are risking people's distance because, I mean, come on. We're risking it. It's worth the risk. It is worth it. That's how we bear. This type of bearing that Paul is calling us to do, that's what it requires. That's what it means. It means a transparency that allows other people to come in. That point of identification, that opportunity to press into every season, that calling to walk together in the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of love under the banner of Christ. It's dangerous, but it's worth it. Paul gives us this reference to Jesus having done that with the Father. Then I love what he does here. Verse 4 can almost kind of stand alone. It doesn't, but it almost could. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So what does the Word of God do for us? Well, it gives us, in, it gives us instruction. It gives us endurance. It gives us encouragement. So the idea is that why do we preach the Bible here at the chapel? Well, this would be a, a, a proof text right here because it gives us encouragement. And it helps build endurance. Why do, we, why do we need those things? Because we live in a world that seeks to tear down. We live in a world that seeks to pick apart. And so when you look at this, of course, I think the context, the immediate context of Paul would have been the Old Testament. The Old Testament being the word that was written down that gave instruction for the good of the people. Of course, in our own context, we can apply this also to the New Testament. So the Word of God, it instructs us and it trains us It trains us in two main things that we as human beings need just about more than anything else. Hope and endurance. Hope and endurance. Because the one thing that the world will do to us is sell us a picture and a good good look of despair. In the Lord of the Rings, when Denethor is up in the white tower and he's got this palantir and this palantir allows him to see things but sauron the evil the evil one also has control of this palantir and what sauron can do is make denethor see things in that palantir that look very real that sound very real that are completely devoid of hope it is utter defeat that's all he sees And so that by the end of his life, before the very tragic end of his life, he is full-blown given into despair. Why? Because the enemy that works against him knows that if he's hopeless, he's already defeated. Beloved, if we live our lives as hopeless, we live defeated. Why does the Word of God written for our instruction work that we might have hope because God understands more than any other being anywhere at all times the human condition 
and the need to have hope. Ask yourself in your own life, have you ever been in a situation that felt hopeless? If you say yes, I'm going to make a prediction or I'm going to make a bet. I bet you made some horrible decisions when you felt hopeless because you couldn't see the good end that might be at the end of that. You were just responding in a moment, just responding in a moment without really knowing the end. You see, Satan, sin, and the world, they want to cultivate hopelessness. And here's why I'll tell you, so they can sell sin as the answer. Ask anybody who's ever been addicted to anything what it's like to kind of feel that despair. Turn to this thing that keeps people tell you, your own self tells you, this is going to fix it. When this could be pornography, this could be drugs, this could be alcohol, this could be work. Uh, this could be people's approval. This could be an addiction to any number of different things. And there's something inside you tells you that this, this, this thing is going to fix it. But what does it do? It makes it worse. It just kills you further because the enemy of our soul and the world understand that the best thing they can do to human beings is make them feel hopeless so they'll look for the answer in the wrong thing. But the Word of God says, I was written so you would have hope. So we don't just get up here and preach because it's a good thing. We don't get up here and expound the Word of God just because it's, yeah, well, that's a good idea. It's because we understand. You understand, I understand, Richard understands. And may any person who ever fills this pulpit understand this is the lifeline of humanity. He continues, gives us benediction. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is, what is the goal? Unity. The goal of the Christian life is unity with God and His people. When you look at this, I love what Paul does here. He's just told you that encouragement and, and instruction and, and hope and, and building up come from the Word now he tells you they come from God. So it should not be lost on us. The Word of God is a good reflection of the, of the character of God, that, that God is the source of endurance, that God is the source of encouragement, that His Word actively reflects that. And beloved, we have a whole history written down for us to prove the truth of this statement. When we think of guys like Abraham or Joseph or Moses or Daniel, or David, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Hosea. When we think about Christ, we think about the disciples who came after. We think of Paul, and of Stephen, and of Philip, and all the nameless hosts of people who lived their lives in hard circumstances, bound together with other people who did not give up, who did not let despair win, who walked in freedom and in victory. Why? Because the Word of God is true and God reigns. And He's drawing us into that sacred community with them. I want us to see this benediction, this pronouncement of blessing. Why does He bless? Well, so the God of encouragement and endurance would grant you to live with this type of unity, as we've already said. But look at this, that in accord with Christ Jesus, that we might have the mind of Christ united with the Father, united with His people, driven by His Word. And what does He tell us that the fruit of this unity is? 
It's worship. Why do we need hope? Why do we need endurance? Why do we need encouragement? Why do we bear with, anyone, with one another? That together, there's unity, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are warriors and we are worshipers. We live, we labor, we fight, and we worship. And none of us work as assassins or single mercenaries. We are the people of God. And so that the fruit of this unity is genuine worship and that the Lordship of Christ together you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, calls us into beautiful worship and obedience. And so since all that is true, what is the end of the matter here this morning? Well, you welcome one another. That's an express command. Therefore, welcome and keep welcoming one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. Yes, beloved. That beautiful welcome, that beautiful reception, that willingness to say, I'm going to bear with you because you are a fellow heir. You are a brother and a sister. And whatever disagreements we may have, whatever ways you're weak and I'm strong and I'm strong and you're weak, let's embrace it and walk together, hand in hand, arm in arm, link together. Because at the end of the day, to love Jesus is to love his people in every season. I've said this before, talking about bearing, but you can't imagine how incredibly convicting this is even just for me personally in thinking about the different times in my life where I've chosen not to do this. But by God's mercy, seeing it not merely as uh, my dispensation of grace to somebody who may be weaker than me, but their gift to me to learn what it's like to live with people. And we are a gift. In your weakness, brother or sister, you are a gift. In your strength, brother or sister, you are a gift. And with all the mess we bring into it, we are a gift one to another. And we get the beauty and the joy of seeing this tapestry come together as fellow believers. So when we think about to love Jesus is to love His people, we may shrug and say, well, that's an obvious statement. And it is. But how often do we discriminate on the grounds of comfort and convenience? Just easier not to engage here. Comfort and convenience are natural human pursuits. I like to be comfortable, and I like for things to be convenient. Don't get me wrong. So they're natural human pursuits. So it's easy to seek relationships where those things are available. And I don't, I don't blame us for doing that. As Americans, we're so conditioned to love our freedoms and to despise those who impede our ability to enjoy them that it drives a lot of decisions. And sometimes, listen, what I'm not saying, here's what I am not saying. Don't say, well, I can't ever challenge ideas. Challenge ideas. Challenge them. Challenge ideas. But if someone is in faith with you, at the end of the day, remember, I can challenge ideas, but we have to live together. We have to work it out. Jesus is calling us to walk in freedom and to love those well who are different. So we confront sin, right? But we love each other as Christ has loved us. We, if bad ideas present themselves, we confront bad ideas. If somebody confronts a bad idea in us, we're willing to listen. And we're even to walk, willing to walk away to say, I don't agree with you, 
but we're brothers and sisters, and that's okay too. Jesus is calling us to bear and to love. I pray that we answer the call. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time this morning and for this rich call here in your word. Thank you, God, for your mercies. And I pray that we'd live out these truths, that we would embrace them, and that your spirit would use them to solidify us in your kingdom. It is through Christ that we pray. Amen.